Um, so welcome to our November Wireside Chat. Um, I'm joined by um, my co-host, Melissa Hart, um, who is, as many of you know, also an instructor in our program. And our special guest tonight is Kirsten Flournoy, um, also a awesome instructor in our program. Um, Kirsten I.K. Flournoy is a devotee of the Gothic, writing as Kirsten Imani Kasai. She's the author of three novels, The House of Urzuli from Shade Mountain Press, Ice Song from Del Rey, and Tattoo also from Del Rey. Her fiction, poetry, and essays have appeared in Transition, Arts and Letters, Existere, Journal of Arts and Literature, Drunk Monkeys, American Journal of Economics and Sociology, and The Body Horror Book. According to forward reviews, Kirsten makes the macabre beautiful. Kirsten is a PhD candidate in Gothic research studies at Manchester Metropolitan University, focused on feminine power in historical witchcraft. She has an MFA in creative writing from Antioch University, Los Angeles, and teaches graduate creative writing and literature in our program and elsewhere. She lives with her wife in Texas, where she quietly advocates for introvert rights from the privacy of her home. I love that. And um, Kirsten, I hope I can share. Congratulations. You were recently wed, in fact. Yes, thank you. That's wonderful. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm, there's so much I would like to talk about um, regarding your writing, regarding your um, journey as a writer. Um, and, but the thing that, that I feel like I have to start with is I, I don't believe I've ever read a, um, a list of publications from a writer that includes Drunk Monkeys and the American Journal of Economics and Sociology. <laughs> <laughs> so tell, tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. It's a bit of a wide range. So I have many uh, interests and um, I got into the journal because uh, I'd written my um, MFA thesis paper on feminist utopias. And so I had that available on, I believe it's ResearchGate and some of the um, academic sharing websites where you post your research. And they approached me and asked me to contribute. Um, so then my, my article on feminist utopia got included in that. Um, and that's like an, one of my interests that kind of bleeds into the other work that I do because it tends to be very uh, focused on feminism and women and women's rights and advocacy and, and the stories of women throughout history, typically um, women of color, marginalized and oppressed women as well. And my own fiction writing you know, I'm, I send it out and I'm kind of pitching it everywhere and it got picked up by Drunk Monkeys as well. <laughs> and that is a speculative fiction piece. And interestingly, that is sort of a dystopian fiction piece about um, a catastrophic, catastrophic volcanic event. So I was reading about how the Dark Ages actually were a result of an enormous volcanic explosion and there was so much ash and debris in the air that it actually changed weather patterns in Europe and that ushered in the dark ages. And so oh. it was a lot about that. And so I wrote about um, the possibility of that happening now and how it would affect people. 
And that story looks at uh, several characters, one in Africa, one in Tokyo, and one in England, coping with those weather changes and the effects. So that is fairly dystopian. But then I also write academically <laughs> research interest in utopias and how we create better worlds. So I'm very interested in polarities. Well, and they, they, they say that one person's utopia is another person's dystopia. So yeah. perhaps there's not so, so such a great difference between them in some respects. Yeah, it's sort of like the, the trash versus treasure, yeah. right? Trash is another person's treasure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's it seems like um, you know I want to I want to go back to our our secret uh, history. Um, yeah. ma many many years ago, as one of my one of my uh, very many freelance gigs, I did a lot of stuff for Delray Books, and and I um, I wrote copy for almost their entire um, speculative fiction list, all their fantasy, all their all their science fiction. I uh, did tons of author interviews. Anyway, at one point not too long ago, when I was looking over Kirsten's biography, the title of her um, of her novel, um, um, Ice Song, just really chimed in my mind. And I, I went through my um, my archive of copy. And sure enough, I wrote the copy for for the for those Del Delray books so long ago, and that just made me pleased as punch and and just very very uh, very um, thrilled more thrilled than ever to have you as an instructor. Um, and the lesson there for for students is that you know you never know uh, where 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 the people that you meet in this business are going to come back into your into your lives. Um, Ice song, if if I remember it correctly. Um, that's a kind of a, a, a post-apocalyptic uh, novel in some respects, isn't it? To some extent. I mean, it's never really specified what the state of the world is, but it does sort of presume an alternate um, future where, you know, genetically people and animals have morphed and combined. Um, and there, there is a lot of, I mean, it's really a work of social commentary. So it was just based on things that I was seeing and experiencing every day. Mm -hmm. um, but it so is, that, yeah. I, I'm, no, please go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I can't remember what I was going to say. So <laughs> go ahead. So that was a novel that came out in 2009. That was a while ago. And it was that, that was your first novel, I believe. Yes. Um, so so tell us about a little bit about like your journey as a writer that that led up to that point and then what came after, like what what got. How, how you began your publishing career and then. What happened to take you to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I had been writing off and on, you know, I had the. Uh, I suppose, familiar origin story of a teacher who recognized um, my interest and I suppose my talent perhaps, and was very encouraging and supportive um, in high school in an AP English class. And it was through that course that I really discovered my voice 
for the first time and my interests. And um, so I'd been writing a little bit here and there, but it wasn't aggressively submitting. And it didn't really occur to me that being a full-time writer was something that was achievable. You know, I, I think for a lot of writers and creatives as well, whether you're an artist or a musician or a writer, there is a lot of societal pressure to pick something practical for your career, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That, you know, perhaps your parents are saying, well, that's an uncertain living, choose something else. And so we don't always get that early support. You know, it really becomes, um, uh, it's like a vehicle that we have to <laughs> learn how to build ourselves and drive it ourselves. Like nobody's going to give it to us, right? So just over the years, I kept working and working. And then actually I had a, an office job and the owners would often travel because they were teaching workshops and I would be the only person left in the office. And so with all this time and really nothing to do, I started writing in my spare time. And I wrote my entire first novel at my <laughs> job. That's great. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like around the edges of my days because I had small children then. And just started sending it out. And I got lucky. I got an agent who um, sold, sold it to Random House, which is the parent company of Del Rey. Yeah. I got a two-book deal. And that was really exciting and gratifying, and I learned so much. Um, and that's one of the things that I always tell my students is, like, that you are so lucky to be getting an insider view of publishing through this program because most writing programs don't teach you what it's like to be a working writer. No, you have to kind of figure it out on your own. Yes. it's. I it's, mean, most like, of us did. You get hired for a job and there's zero training and you yeah. have to figure it out. And so um, it was a learning curve, but of course it was so much fun. And I got to meet some really interesting writers and people that I you know, heard about. Um, I went to the parties and went to Comic-Con and so it was loads of fun, but certainly very different than I than the mythology yeah right? and um so then when I got to my third novel I made a different choice and and actively was pursuing a small independent feminist publisher mm -hmm. and had a very different experience than working with one of the big four now they're four um they were going to be three but I think the Simon and Schuster acquisition got blocked um so I've, I've kind of had a broad range of experiences that have been really nice and so yeah it's just been a journey I didn't really think that I was gonna go on it and just because I was very dogged about this is something I really do and it comes naturally to me and it's a way that I express myself and move through the world and interact with these big ideas. Mm -hmm. so, did, you, did you already have your MFA when you sold your, your first novel? No. Uh-uh. So you went, you 
after you after you had success as a as a published novelist, then you went back and got your MFA. Yes, I got my MFA because I wanted to teach. I see. And did, and was that like kind of in that in the gap in between, say, your second novel and your third novel? Um, let's see. The first book came out in 2009. Second one in 2011. I started my program in 2012 and finished in 2014. Oh, okay. So I already had the two books under yeah. my belt. But so I'm I'm wondering if the if the MFA your experience in the MFA was was one of the things that contributed to your taking kind of a different route with your third novel and going with a smaller feminist oriented press. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of my mentors actually um, had said to me when I was talking to her about excuse me <coughs> about my experience publishing that a lot of people had. A lot of writers she knew had gotten their hearts broken through publishing. And I really related to that. Um, I think part of my publishing journey was that my first got book got picked up. It was very exciting, a two-book deal. But then in 2009, we had the, the big crash, the recession, mm -hmm. and there were huge publishing shakeups in the industry. And so I think I went through three editors. Wow. So my acquiring editor wasn't the one that ended up working on the second book. The one that got the second book wasn't the one that actually took it. Yeah, that 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 ha that's happened to me before as well. It's 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 unfortunate and and uh, it's really it's really a crapshoot because there's no guarantee that that new editor is going to have feel any kind of connection to your book. And I mean, really, in a way, I don't blame them because obviously they have their own agenda and their own people that they want to publish. But still, it's it's very tough for writers in in that position. I I I commiserate with you. Have you been in that position too, Melissa? Three times. Three. Um, times what it, i think i'm cursed <laughs> kirsten i'm curious how else has traditional publishing with a you know one of the big four broken your heart i think this is instructive mm. um well first of all i i came into the process of publishing with as i said the mythology right of what a writer's life is like and what's going to happen it was so very exciting but like i i literally thought <laughs> although you know practically of course i knew this wasn't going to happen but it felt to me as though it was such a momentous event that i'd gotten this book published that the day that it hit shelves i would open my front door and they would be like a <laughs> A marching band going down my street. <laughs> <laughs> and there was nothing happened. I went to bookstores, and you know, most books, most stores don't carry a book unless it's big. And I didn't know about the whole thing about paid promotions and places. Um, editors so many times, and like one of the things that was most difficult was that I wrote. 
Ice Song was book one and Tattoo was book two of a series. They did not design them the same and they did not promote them as a series. So it wasn't actually until maybe like four years ago that I happened to notice that they were starting to list them as book one and two. Mm -hmm. So the second book was released as a standalone and not a sequel. Oh, wow. Which tanked it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so crazy. you have to wonder like what were they thinking i mean i i think it was the the process of shifting so many editors and like Mm -hmm. the shakeups and and just you know the person that loved your book and brought it into a publishing house may not be the person that ends up taking it to press and they're not going to put perhaps the same amount of love and attention because they're not personally invested yeah so on a happier note i hope did you have a different experience with the smaller press and if so what did that look like i did have a different experience it it was a very small press and Uh the um rosalie morales kearns is the one who picked up the book and she was the publisher um so she was you know wearing a lot of hats and she it was like hand in hand a process of editing it and planning the release and the promotion and you know talking about the budget so i had a very intimate process Mm -hmm. efforting that book into the world which i was really grateful for and i loved like it was wonderful to have the big publisher experience and understands like the machinery, <laughs> right, of this behemoth enterprise. Fascinating, so informative. I loved learning about it, but I also love understanding what small presses are like and really getting that experience of, I love this work and I wanna share it with others. Yeah. But that was really special. Yeah. Yeah, Thank to, you. Re- to, to really have that, um, that uh, sense of being involved on such a such a on actually multiple levels because you really don't get that in a with a with one of the big publishers unfortunately yeah. and yeah. you can't because they, they they don't operate on that on that scale um, but yeah. I think no please go ahead uh, what they what their their investment in each book is very different yeah you know so. So, so what, what are, I also want to talk about your, your academic work, but before we get to that point, tell, what are you working on now fiction wise? Um, right now I am working on a novel that I've been looking at for like 25 years. Okay. (laughs) Um, and I've sent pages to my agent and she was very encouraging. So I'm working on finishing it and it's a story that I'm I'm really invested in it's a speculative fiction sort of story to a degree but um I feel like the content is perhaps very incendiary in this political climate so I'm a little mm-hmm. wary of the work itself and the reception and I think that that 
impedes my progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm working on it. Do you think that that, I don't want to press you about, about the content of your, of your story, but, but do you feel that that's something that would, that would um, make it more difficult for your agent to sell the novel? No, I think that it's going to be exciting for a lot of people because it's very different. That's great. Um, I, I'm just very aware of how, I guess, how inflammatory climates are. Right. I, I am. I'm so curious about <laughs> about this novel, but but I know I don't. I don't want to. Don't want to ask you about it. Well, I mean, I do want to ask you about it, but I don't know how much you're comfortable talking about it. <laughs> about a woman who um, creates a, a um, substance to neutralize male violence. Oh, wow. And she trains an army of women around the world to go out and deliver it in areas of high conflict and high violence. And she's got this side business with building self-sustaining societies, so little is model societies. Um, and like the FBI is after her. So there's like all these different elements that come into play, but really it's about, uh, I guess at its core, another feminist utopian vision. Yeah. Right. How do we make the world better for everybody when strategically you look or you know, if you really look at the numbers, right, a small number of men, genetic men, are responsible for the majority of global violence at the uh, expense of women, children, and other men. So how do we address this subset of violent offenders in a way that is humane and practical and ethical? Yeah. So I'm wrestling with these really big questions, but also trying to make a novel that is, you know, a little bit of a thriller. It's got a love story aspect. It's got social commentary. Yeah. So there's a lot. It's a lot to wrestle. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a big book. It sounds great. Thank you. It is a big book. And then. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kirsten. Oh, and I'm also working on my uh, dissertation, which is yeah. a novel critical piece. So, Melissa, I know you had a question you wanted to upraise well, from, the, from the chat. Yeah, yeah, it's Taryn's question. Such a good question. Would you recommend a small publisher for a first time publishing? Hmm. Um, I think, you know, you can't always determine who wants your book and who picks it up. But I say whether it's a big publisher or a small one, go for the person that you feel good about working with. Mm-hmm. With the person that really understands your work and your vision, and they have a compatible vision. I think the nice thing about small publishers, especially now is that there's so many of them, um, publishing is a great lead, ability to deliver um, content to people. And so, I think one of the best things about that is that you have small publishers that are much more willing to take a risk on 
new writers and especially if your content is unusual. Yeah. So definitely pitch to them, definitely reach out. And I, and I guess, I'm sorry, Melissa, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to add <laughs> that you can find so many of these small publishers and editors at the AWP conference yes. in Seattle in um, March of 2023. So it's well worth attending. And I think there are still scholarships available for MFA students. I believe there are. Melissa, could you throw a link maybe in the I chat will. about that? Yeah. And, and by the way, everyone, I, if I'm I think I'm remembering correctly that you're going to be um, presenting at AWP, aren't you? Don't you have a panel there? Moderating a panel, yeah. Very exciting. Will you I be there, Kirsten? Uh-oh. Kirsten, I, we can't hear you. I think you're muted. Kirsten, I think you're, I think you're muted. Maybe I can un. Maybe I can un. Yeah, Yeah, we can't hear you. Oh, there, oh, there we I go. go. Okay. As I mentioned, I'm I'm in this uh, house and I have some tech issues, and one of them is that my battery is just about to die. Oh no. <laughs> so I'm sorry for the informality of my presentation. <laughs> it's this is an informal chat. So it's, it's, it's very, very fitting. So, Kirsten, are you, will you be at AWP this year? Is that something that you have done in the past? Uh, yes, I've done AWP before. I was on a um, panel um, about queering the canon mm -hmm. um, several years ago. And I haven't really gone that much just because I've had so many other, you know, things going on in my life. Um, but I do intend to go at some point. Right now, my focus is on finishing the PhD work. Yep. So, so let's talk about that really quickly as well, because um, your PhD, first of all, you're in an incredible program that that uh, that um, allows you to to travel to to England, I believe, for for portions of the of the PhD. Um, is that right? So that's um, cool. It's not one of the low residency periods where I'm required to go, uh -huh. but uh, I do want to go um, at least to defend my dissertation. Yep. Um, and I'm hoping to get funding to enable me to go to the uh, International Gothic Association conference. And then my university, Master Met, also has... Uh, Gothic events and festivals and so forth. So we'll see. I've applied for some fellowships and grants and that sort of thing. And and your and your thesis is kind of like I think you mentioned a minute ago, a kind of a combination between a, a scholarly, a more traditional scholarly work, and and kind of a, a work of fiction. Yes. Um, so there are two complementary work. One of them is a, the critical thesis. And then the second one is a novel, which is really a, a collection of linked short stories. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're both tackling this aspect of feminine power in historical witchcraft from different angles. Mm -hmm. So 
critically, we're looking at a variety of different topics, such as um, what is feminine power? How does it relate to witchcraft? Um, how is it interpreted by society? What do we think of women's power and so on? And it's taken a turn sort of into um, quantum physics, where I'm looking at what is the actual nature and makeup of magic and personal power. Wow, interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's going deep. And then um, the creative piece is a series of short stories that follow the reincarnated soul of one witch mm-hmm. born through different lifetimes and eras. And uh, then that allows us to look at different um, historical periods, different types of magic, right? We have a low country root worker, um, the American South in like the 1920s and 30s. We have um, teenager in in the neo-pagan movement in the UK in the 80s. We've got uh, a Neolithic witch who is discovering her power like pre-ISIS. So it's really great. It touches on a lot of aspects of mythology, folktales, folklore, and historical figures. So I've had so much fun doing it. And the best thing is that I will have a doctorate and my project is on witchcraft. So really when I finish my PhD, I will be a witch. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's fantastic. (laughs) I like literally be a witch doctor. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So somebody in the chat asked how you react to negative reviews of your books. Oh my gosh, that's a good question. So when I first started, um, when my first novel got published, my agent at the time, I believe it was her, told me like, keep an eye on your reviews. And when you, you know, see the really good ones, like pass them on to your publisher, promote them, etc. And I understand the wisdom of that approach. But um, I had a Google search, you know, Google alert set up for my name. So everything related to my book came across and man, it was rough. I, I was not prepared for negative reviews. (laughs) Like it didn't occur to me that people, the things that people would find fault with, um, Like, I think I got a negative review because my book was shelved in the wrong area of the library. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, but I I have nothing to do with that, you know, or or it's like when you read on Amazon and people give something a negative review because the package was damaged. Yeah. Which is not the fault of the the producer of the item. Mm -hmm. Um, So that that it was really fulfilling and wonderful when I got good ones and I really needed those small comments. Like I would hear from people or I would see reviews or people would email me and tell me how much the work meant to them and that they loved it so much. You know, like there was one woman that said she checked my first book out from the library and she loved it so much. She didn't want to give it back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was so lovely and charming. It made me really happy that 
now having that experience, I say use a filter. Yeah. Have someone else, you know, do that job for you. Don't yeah. yourself to everything because, you know, that that like little flame that we have burning is like a pilot light. And pilot lights get blown out, right? And then yeah. like your creative life can go cold. Mm -hmm. You have to nurture and protect yourself and your work and, and your creative spirit. I think quite a high degree that we're not aware of when we first begin an endeavor like this. Do, do you, I mean, you're, you are doing scholarly research in the, in the history of witchcraft. But I'm also wondering, in light of what you just said about the, you know, nurturing the pilot light of our own writerly souls, as it were, whether that whether you feel that there's an uh, kind of a magical or or um, uh, witchcraft like aspect of your approach to your creative self and yourself as a writer. Um. To some extent, yes. I mean, there is absolutely magic involved in the way that I work. I don't know that everyone else does. But for me, it's it's a very. Um, it's funny because I'm I'm sort of eminently practical and yet I have this side that is very focused on like the ethereal. And so. For me, when I'm writing, it's like uh, it's like I hear a little bit of a song or something, and then I'm tuning a radio dial, trying to find the signal and like hone in to where it's strongest, and then I can like hear it and yeah. get back and convey it, right? Yeah. And I very much believe in this sort of collaborative approach with the world of your stories. I, I guess it's sort of like uh, Jungian, you know, connecting with yes. um, the collective unconscious, but it's very much to the extent where just as little kids have imaginary friends, right? And they're very real for them. I think our characters are also very real for us. And these stories are real and these worlds are real. And you can talk to those people. You can enter those worlds and observe. You can ask questions. And I think approaching it with this sort of mysticism um, allows it to be this really special collaborative process. And I get to be a facilitator of you know, ushering in these these stories into these worlds. Yeah, it's like someone just posted in the comments about the static on the TV, right? It's like you're you're listening, you're finding a signal. There's something in the universe that is trying to find its way to you. Um, I was just telling my friend, the friend that I'm staying with is an artist and a photographer, and we were kind of talking about this topic, and I, I mentioned that I think it's Elizabeth Gilbert who said this, that an idea will come and knock on your door. And 
you can answer and it will be your idea and it'll say, hey, work with you, right? <laughs> or let's, let's tell this story and bring it into the world together. And if you don't open the door or, you know, you're not ready, then that idea is like, okay, I'm going to find somebody else who's ready for me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I try to be ready and try to be respectful of that. I, I really love that because because that that it gets away from the, the, the mindset that this is my idea. It belongs to me. Nobody else can have it. Right. I I alone can write this. Instead, it's like you're the channel for this idea that could be coming from to, to anyone else. Yeah, exactly. It, it is. I don't want to say channeling because that has such a hokey connotation. Yep. But it kind of is like that. I think that's really like someone I just saw posted um, that they find ideas in their dreams. It's kind of the same thing. You're accessing a dream world. You're communing with other planes through your work. And people are able to open that channel, that portal, through multiple means, whether you are doing it through art or trance dance or whatever your thing is. So Melissa, I see I see you nodding along. Or is that is your experience dovetail with that? Yeah, I mean, for me, long distance running and writing go hand in hand. But I was raising my hand because I wanted, I think, Kirsten, that you were quoting Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah. And I wondered if you felt that that book would be useful to MFA students. Yeah, I think that that is a great book because it it does give you a sense of like creativity as this bigger process. Um, The other book that I really like is, uh, if anybody's familiar with Bell Hooks, I always reference her work. Um, Remembered Rapture is one that I really like a lot and I, I think that she has a wonderful approach that is both uh, practical and artistic. Okay, thank you. Can I ask you one more question? Is that okay, Paul? Of course. Are you are you still represented by serendipity? Yes. Okay, so what is your relationship like with those? those agents at Serendipity. I interviewed Regina Brooks one time for an article and was just blown away. What a wonderful person. Oh, that's great. Yeah, um, my has been really supportive of my work and interested in my, idea, my ideas, which I love. And um, I appreciate that she's patient and consistent. Because <laughs> I'm a slow writer. I'm a very slow would you, one of those people that can turn out a book a year but it's like I think art something more like that um do you do you feel that it would be advantageous for for new for emerging writers to get a literary agent <coughs> excuse me I think if you can get an agent, that is wonderful because you have an advocate. You have somebody who knows the business. 
um, that can be a, a really positive intermediary for you, right? Because especially if it's your first book, you don't really know um, how to approach people. You don't know the language. You don't know how to negotiate those long, long contracts. Um, and I think it can be really nice to have an agent. But again, publishing has changed a lot. And there are many, you know, independent and micro presses and publishers that you don't have to have an agent to approach, which is great. Um, so I think, you know, understanding where your book fits in the market. If you are writing something like a romance or a commercial thriller, that you know is something that sells, then yeah, definitely approach uh, agents. If you're writing something that is maybe more experimental, I would try indie publishers as well. Mm -hmm. They will be more receptive. Okay. I mean, one thing that an agent provides um, and that, that you did mention is, is a kind of, um, you know, experience and um, um, radar for scams and and the like that that uh, that especially a young writer or, or a writer who is who is um, publishing for the first time and maybe looking into a small press or or even going up more of a self-publishing route uh, might not be as attuned to as as an agent. So if you if you are going that route. And you're and you don't have an agent. What do you do to uh, to supply yourself with that um, with that protection that an agent can provide, so that you don't find yourself getting scammed? Yeah, there are definitely some ways to educate yourself before you go into it. So um, I'm not sure how often it's updated anymore, but there's a site, uh, Editors and Predators. Yeah. Or um, writer beware. Yeah. Right. And those are great because then you get a good sense of like what kind of problems people have had and what not to do and what to watch out for. So, you know, common sense advice is you're not paying anybody up front. So if somebody says, okay, for $300, I'll edit your book and then we'll take it to market. You are not investing anything. The agents get paid when you get paid. Which is, I mean, just just to say, like that does that's not to say that if you're going the self-publishing route, it may be wise to hire a professional editor to to you know to edit your book, um, and that's 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 a little bit of a different thing than what than what you were just referring to as as you know kind of a red flag. Yeah, for sure, and I do advise people to use an editor if you are self-publishing because that will tank a, a good book is people have uh I, I find that readers have little patience for spelling errors and formatting things and so um i teach i, I have taught um editing and publishing workshops uh, at san diego state recently and a lot of it focused on actually how do we make a book appealing to customers, how do we make it look professional and real? Because often when you're self-publishing, you're trying to do everything yourself and, and you may not have the skill set to or the money. 
Yes, exactly. To design a book. So it is challenging. I mean, that's one of the benefits of having a nice network and being a good literary citizen is being able to trade skills, right? Like I'll edit your book, but I'm also a graphic designer by trade. So how about I help you with design and layout? So that kind of thing can be really beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to ask a question from the chat here uh, from Mm -hmm. Tabitha, which I think is a great question. I have started and not finished many books. My main problem seems to be ending my work. Do you have any advice? Yeah, ending is is challenging. Um, I think it depends on whether you're a pantser or a plotter. Right. Um, I tend to be more of a pantser. So I'm I'm just listening like you tell me, what are we doing? And putting it on paper. Um, and if you are a plotter, you know, it's it's easier to work from an outline. But I, I think it's really good to look at what you imagine for the ending, right? What do you want to send people home with? What's the last feeling? What's the lesson? What is the purpose of your story? Because if you understand that, you can guide people towards it, whether you are pantsing or plotting, right? You understand where you're going. If you don't know what that end goal is, what's the feeling? What's the lesson? How do the characters change? What are people going to think about when they close the book and it's done? Yeah. It's my goal to ultimately entertain them and they'll read the book and enjoy it and forget about it. Is my goal to offer a profound lesson? Is this a character study? You know, so so knowing what the end goal is, right? In other forms of writing, such as journalism, that's called the takeaway. Yeah. What is the message that people are going to take from the work? So you have to understand what it is that you're trying to get to first. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, that, that might not happen on your first draft. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of it is trial and error. We learn by making mistakes. Um, so keep writing, you know, ask ask your characters what happens. Where does the story end? Sometimes the end is not where we think it is. No, absolutely. I, I really like what you said about about a feeling, um, because I find that with my my own work, um, I often know what the feeling I would like a reader to have at the end. I know that long before I actually know, if I ever do, what my message is or what lesson I mean to impart. So I can kind of navigate by the North Star of that feeling. Mm -hmm. And that will take me towards an ending that is, you know, consonant with that feeling, but involves plot elements that I hadn't necessarily considered. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But because you have that North Star, you can always reorient yourself yeah. if you start getting lost. Yeah, because you're like, I'm moving away from that feeling now. And I, I know that feel. I'm confident in that, in that feeling. That's the feeling I want my readers to have. So I need to shift back in this direction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I like that, the North Star. Melissa, do you find that as well in your work? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm trying to deal with the chat. Oh, no worries. <laughs> I can put the chat on pause. Tell me what, tell me that question again. 
I was wondering if you kind of have the same experience in your work of um, understanding where you're trying to get to in your book. Like, and yeah. So both in essay, like literary essay writing and writing books, I've heard that a great ending leaves the reader thinking something new and or wanting to do something new. Mm. And I tend to write to those. I tend to write to that. So, um, yeah, I have a like Paul, a feeling that I'm going toward. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that that readers will end the book with a particular feeling and maybe a call to action. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think understanding what a call to action and a takeaway is is important for new writers because they may not be familiar with that those terms too. Can you define those terms? Um, well, the takeaway is really the message, right? What do you want people to walk away with if they define, like what, what Melissa said, what they learned or experienced or what changed for them in a sentence? And um, I think understanding that is really important. Um, what was the other term we're defining? Call to action. Uh, the call to action. <laughs> um, I get caught up in my own thoughts sometimes, and it's like they just boop, boop, go away. Um, a call to action is like a, a command. What are you going to do? Right, you're trying to inspire people to take a specific action. So, you know, if you're writing an opinion piece, you're trying to change their mind or convince them of something. The call to action would be you're reading this story and, oh, I feel inspired. I want to take action. And, you know, if you're writing a piece about the environment, well, now I understand the problem. I want to be part of the solution. So mm-hmm. I just this article on um, plastic waste in the oceans, I want to go clean up a beach, right? So that is like inspiring people to actually do things in the real world versus, you know, theoretically. Yeah. Thank you. So folks, we are we are coming to the end of our of our chat. So I want to encourage people to put questions into the the chat, the chat of the chat, and then we will upraise them to Kirsten and and uh, hopefully answer them. Here, actually, here's an interesting question um, from from uh, Bradley. Do certain words create feelings like certain colors change mood? I love that. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, yeah, absolutely, because we have so many preconceived notions of of the baggage that a word carries with it, right? And word choice is so important in your work because you can shift meaning, you know, really profoundly or really subtly depending on the word that you choose. Yeah, the word you choose and the words that surround it. Yeah, absolutely. I always describe them like Legos, right? If you change the order, break them apart, shift them, how does it affect the pattern? Yeah. Here's another good question. Do you have a hard time staying in third person or first person while writing? Um, Kristen says sometimes they drift from one to the other without realizing it. 
Yeah, I think that's pretty common, especially in a first draft, because, you know, you're very open to the idea. You're watching, you're listening, you're trying to put this puzzle together and POV isn't necessarily solid. And I know a lot of writers might change their POV several times in the course of a novel because the POV really can affect the way that the story is told, how it's interpreted. Um, and what you can do with it narratively. And so I think it's fine if that happens, you're aware of it. Choose your POV and go back and you just correct for it when you're revising. I don't think um, it should necessarily be something that you need to worry about when you're putting a first draft down. Yeah, I mean, the main thing I think is to be aware of it to, to yeah. reach the point where you can be aware of it because once you're aware of it, then like um, Kirsten said, you can correct for it in subsequent revisions. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, when you're drifting between POVs at in a first draft, you, you very well might just be feeling your way towards the, the POV, POV of your novel. You might not know it yet. Yeah, exactly. The voice may not be defined and that's something that just emerges through the work. Yeah, and I, I, I know with my with my second novel, I wrote it in one POV, POV through many, many drafts, and then it was only in the final draft that I was like, oh my God, what, 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 what am I doing? What am I thinking? It really <laughs> needs to be in this other POV, and I changed it, and, um, I, and it was better that way. I'm it, sorry? It changed your novel radically to do oh, that. Oh, it made it, it made it so much better, and it, and, and, the, the thing is, it didn't change anything substantive about the plot at all. Not at all. All it did was refocus the, the I guess the characters came through in a different way. But my, my relationship to my story changed radically just by a simple POV change. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. And it is about shifting focus, right? Like putting on different glasses and lenses. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I have to go host a live Twitter chat. Yes, and can you put the the link to that? Melissa just had uh, her her um, novel Daisy Woodworm Changes the World uh, just came out. Wonderful novel's been getting rave reviews, and um, she's going right from this chat to another one. And <laughs> um, the uh, um, are you going to put the link into? Yeah. Oh, I didn't put the link. There's no link. <laughs> Oh, there's no link. There, oh, okay. There's no well, there's, link. Oh, you just have to go up to the search bar and type in hashtag MG oh, book chat. So okay. it's on Twitter. Yeah, if we oh, still okay. have Twitter in the next four minutes. Yeah. Right. So I invite I invite everyone to to follow <laughs> follow Melissa over to MG Book Chat and and um, if you have to cut out a little bit early, Melissa, I and we understand. Oh, I do. I yeah. do. Kirsten, well, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you so much, Melissa. It was great to chat with you. You as Thanks, well. Melissa. Paul, thank you. Yep. See, See you soon. Bye. So we've got a few minutes left. Are there any more uh, questions? Kirsten, the I see like glimpses of artwork behind you. Are those the... <laughs> Are those the paintings of the person that you're staying with, the artist? Um, no. 
this is artwork that her great aunt has. Wow. So um, she also collects clowns. So wow. there are like scary, scary clowns. No, they're more like cutesy clowns, but there oh, is dear. an odd painting of a clown. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it, no. <laughs> it is very, uh, it's like I'm in a novel where I'm staying at this house and there's all these, you know, technical problems. and. Yeah, um, you're like in the first chapter of a novel that's going to take a very, very dark turn. Yeah, absolutely. Probably, probably tonight as you're, as you're trying to get no, to sleep. No, no, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> We already had an experience with trying to locate the fuse box in the basement. And literally, it reminded me of the opening scenes of the movie. Oh, my Barbara God. Where you they you went the down door. to the basement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's a spooky basement. Of course it is. It's got clowns on the main floor. Of course, the basement's going to be spooky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> So let's have one last question from Kirsten, from Kristen, I'm sorry, uh, who asks, did you know that your series was going to be a series when you started writing it, or did you realize it later? That's a great question. Um, I'd only visualized the first story, and so I wrote the first novel, and in the process of that, I got to the end of that novel and was like, oh, this isn't done at all. Like, mm -hmm. there's a lot more to come. And so I actually really like the second novel a lot because I feel that it's more um, layered and complex. And I like what I did with the characters and the way that they revealed themselves. And there's actually a third novel that didn't get picked up and I just haven't finished it. Um, okay. Do you think you'll yeah. publish that at some point? I would love to because that one... Um, has a different focus it, it's more about one of the younger characters so it could be you know YA um the first two are pretty adult is that does, does Del Rey still have the rights to those novels they do yeah that's the that's the problem you know because now you've got you've got a third novel that's like connected to those but unless you sell it to Del Rey you know it's kind of going to be an orphan book at least with the other yeah. books that it's related to. Yeah, and it's hard to sell an or nobody wants to pick up like a I, the third book in a series that's published by someone else. Don't I know it? I I sold I have the two two books in my in my um I have a a book about or two books about kind of a historical fantasy that has to do with clocks and time. Mm -hmm. Um and the third book the culminating book of the whole series, I, I don't know if I'll ever, ever even write it because yeah. the, the, the books, you know, the I got dropped by the publisher after the first two books came out. Mm. Um, it's just it's just so frustrating. Folks, this is the this is the life of a writer. You know, you have to <laughs> roll with these punches. Right. Yeah. And keep keep on yeah. to the next thing. Have you thought about self-publishing that third novel? I, I have. I mean, I have to write it. <laughs> I have to write it first. But um, and I'll no, I think I will write it. But but what it did was, um, I mean, that was such a crushing experience that I couldn't begin work on the third novel right away. Um, I, I had to do some other stuff in between and like the novel I'm working on right now, for example. But, um, you know, 
probably in the next few years, I'll go back and finish that tr that trilogy I, I, because I don't like to leave things unfinished. Yeah, right. I mean, there's the story is still waiting to be told. Yeah, exactly. It's like yeah. the knock on the door. And I opened the door to that idea and it would not be right to to now shut the door on it now that I've invited it in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We need closure. I like yeah. things being tied up in a neat little bow. Yep, exactly. Well, folks, that is the end of our of our Wireside Chat for today. I want to thank um, our guest, Kirsten Flournoy, so much. This was just a wonderful discussion, and I want to wish you the best of luck with your, um, with your uh, doctorate. Uh, I, I'm very excited that I'll actually know a witch doctor, and uh, I look forward to to reading your next book. Thank you so much. This is really wonderful. I loved chatting about my work and hearing all your questions. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much again. All right. I'm going to stop the recording. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Bye.